I know what you all got a question on your mind. I know. The big elephant in the room. All right. All right. Um, my, uh, my son, a newborn son at home, he's got a little book that we read him a lot called Ten Little Fingers and Ten Little Toes. Well, that story this week took on a whole new meaning. <laughs> um, and it's, a, it's, it's so ironic. So last Sunday, right, we're here. This is part two of a two-part series on the subject of a biblical theology of work. Uh, we're taking time off of going through uh, the book of Romans with Terry. And so we kicked off last week with part one, which is looking at work in the order of creation and work in the disorder of creation. And uh, we basically signed off with, you know, be encouraged, get into the Monday pulpit and, um, you know, your work is meaningful. So I wake up on Monday to, to get ready to go to work and I go to the gym, um, 5.30, just curling iron, having a good time. Um, or 5 a.m. actually, and then 5.30 rolls around and Dan Valand walks in um, and he sits down on the bench next to me and uh, give him, you know, the nod, but we're in the zone, so we don't talk. Um, <laughs> anyway, I was doing what I always do, uh, some, you know, some chest presses, um, and, <laughs> and, and I go to put them down, and I didn't realize that there were other weights underneath, and the, the strangest thing happened. I basically crushed my finger and snapped it off in between two weights, and um, not completely off. There was a bit holding it on, but poor Dan um, took me to the ED, and three hours later, I, I got I got it put back together, um, and I, you know it was a it was a week where I was expecting to go to work. We've just talked about work, and then I had to sit on day seven all week rest. <laughs> um, but I didn't really rest. I was um, trying to work. I was trying to rethink this talk, and you know on opioids, it's not that easy to do. Um, and then you know our, our little baby gets sick. I can't help with anything at home. It, it's been, if I'm being transparent, you know, I believe church is a place of practical grace. You know, I, you should not see um, fakeness up the front here from the pulpit. Uh, it has been a rough week for us in the Dean House. I mean, it's a finger for goodness sake. But I love playing piano and guitar, and they were considering chopping it off. So I'm thankful that I've got a finger, and hopefully one day I can get back to guitar. <laughs> Um, because that is one way I love to work at this church is, is service. So that's been really tough. Um, and trying to work out priorities between work and rest when I'm preaching about work and rest. And now today we're going to look at anxiety and worry, uh, which has basically filled my week. Uh, I'm living what I'm preaching to you this week. Um, so this is a sermon that has come out of actual pain today. Uh, so I hope it's a blessing. As Mick said, as I just said, this is part two of a two-part series on uh, what I've called Towards a Biblical Theology of Work. We have um, a, an outline on the screen. Yep, so last week we looked at the first two white parts up there, uh, Work in the Order of Creation. That was basically looking at um, this idea of what work was like in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve uh, and how work was good. It's, it, God worked in creation. Uh, God put Adam and, to work in the garden before Genesis chapter 3 in the fall. Work was good. Work was actually one of the ways that we understand who we are. Beings made in the image of God and God is a working God. It's part of our design. So going to work is a part of the way we have been made and not going to work can actually be really negative uh, it can have some real problems with, you know, unemployment, and, and we've looked at some studies and things like that as well. Um, we also, in, very importantly, defined work as 
not just paid work. Work is any form of mental, physical or spiritual activity done in the service of others, ultimately for the glory of God. Mum and dads at home, you're working. Retired people who are somehow finding productive things to do in the service of others in their twilight years are working. You know, not, I'm not talking about those on, on a yacht collecting seashells in their twilight years before they lose it. Um, that's not what we're talking about here. So, um, yeah, that was part one, work in the order of creation. And then we, we, we looked at another point there, work in the disorder of creation, and basically how sin really disrupted all of this order and unity and cohesion that we had in creation. If work in the order of creation has serving others to the glory of God as our goal, and with that as a byproduct or a provision came things like money or satisfaction or respect or whatever, what sin did was it took our eye off of ultimately the glory of God and put it onto the provisions of our work. So we made the byproducts of our work, what we get from it rather than what we give in it, the goal. We swapped the purpose and the byproduct, the goal and the provision around. That's what we looked at in the disorder of work, in the disorder of creation. Just flipped it up on its head. That's why we have people, you know, who go to work only for the purposes of making money. And when you make money, you're God. You have to maximize your profit margin. That's when things like extortion, fraud, theft, scams people at work that we all know who are very difficult because they're thinking about the bottom line rather than people. Um, All wrapped into that. And we started to talk about a few examples in the scripture and it's all through there. Well, today, we're going to be wrapping up this two-part series by looking at the third part on the outline up there on the screen, which is work in the kingdom of God. And there's going to be two sub-points to this. Work in the kingdom of God is redeemed by God's work. And secondly, work in the kingdom of God participates in God's redemptive work. We're going to be anchoring ourselves in Matthew chapter 6. So if you want to turn there with us, um, we'll get underway. All right, as you turn in there, uh, let me just say, work in the kingdom of God. In Matthew chapter 5 and 7, this is the section of the New Testament known as the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Jesus delivered the sermon relatively early on in his public ministry uh, and it was not, actually not that long after his, uh, his baptism there in the Jordan. And it, it is the longest continuous discourse we have on record of Jesus' public ministry. And it contains a lot of teachings on morality, on the Beatitudes and the, the well-known Lord's Prayer as well. For our purposes today, we're going to be looking only at a part of the Sermon on the Mount there in Matthew chapter 6, 19 to 33, But before we can understand the significance of that section as it relates to this subject of work, we need to understand the the bigger, broader idea of the kingdom of God, which is a major motif or theme throughout the Sermon on the Mount. So to understand that, I want you to back up with me just over the page to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20. Turning to chapter 5, this is again where Jesus starts this Sermon on the Mount. And he begins by outlining um, to his disciples there, the kinds of attitudes that they should have if they are believers. And this presentation, it culminates here in verse 20, chapter 5, verse 20, where Jesus says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, 
you will never enter the kingdom of God. Now, what does that mean? Well, to refresh again a little bit from last week, remember, Adam's work in the Garden of Eden was a work within the confines of the God-given order and structure built into the fabric of creation. He wasn't just the owner of the garden, like, you know, God. Adam was there not to to remake it or or tell the owner what was going to happen in the garden. He was put there to work it and keep it, like a steward over the top of it. He was a keeper. And remember, we talked about that idea of keep, the Hebrew word for keep there in Genesis 2, 15 to 17. That word there carries two double meanings. The idea of guarding, it's the same word used of the cherubim, guarding the exit on, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 26, at the, as they're guarding the access back into Garden of Eden. Um, and the word is also found in Deuteronomy and Numbers, talking about observing and obeying the law. So this idea of keeping the garden has to do with guarding it, by observance and by obse- observing and obeying God's law. What was God's law? Do not eat from the tree. So there was that moral prohibition in there. That's what the idea of keeping was. And when Adam was doing that, he was living faithfully in accordance with the way he had been designed to reflect the image of God. So what all of that tells us then is that Adam's obedience wasn't just arbitrary. It wasn't obedience for obedience's sake. It was obedience for the sake of this deep, personal, intimate relationship that he had with God. Inasmuch as his faithfulness to God was a faithfulness to himself. Because he was made in the image of God. And if he's living his life the way God has designed it, then he's living out in accordance with the way he's been designed. And that is a faithfulness to himself inasmuch as it is a faithfulness to God. So in other words, from the very beginning, the kingdom of God, and this is important, the kingdom of God was characterized by the unity of a loving, intimate relationship between human beings and God, between human beings and human beings, and between human beings and their place of work in creation. But then Genesis 3 rolls around, and sin fractures all of that, like a divorce. Our relationship goes from being characterized as one of faithful obedience to hostility. Because if you're not guarding, if you're guarding the garden by obedience, then the only one that can attack it is you by disobedience. We no longer do what we do out of a motivation of love for God. We do it out of a motivation of self-interest and what we can get. The human theme song was Frankie Sinatra, I Did It My Way. One of the consequences of all of this was that our work became very difficult because now it was no longer characterized by this loving service to other people which fostered and cultivated relationships and unity with one another and with God. We had lost sight of who God was. It all became about what we could get, not what we could give. We had lost sight of God's truth, goodness and beauty, the one in whose image we are made. And feeling naked, we started desperately trying to search for ways to cover ourselves with the things of this earth. But without any knowledge or awareness or foresight into the order of God's design, having lost sight of him, it just didn't work. And so our our toil just got frustrated. Going to work looked like trying to work through thistles and weeds. Sweat of your brow, you shall eat bread. To dust you return. We literally work to death because of Genesis chapter 3. But despite all of that disorder and disarray, remember, we also saw Genesis 3.15, the promise of a provision of salvation in the seed of the woman that will crush the serpent's head. 
and reorient creation to the truth of God's word. Because that's where it all went wrong, Genesis 3.1. Did God really say? So here we are today, 21st century, 2021. And you and I know, I, I think most of us here would know, that the promise of Genesis 3.15 was fulfilled in a guy called Jesus, the first century Nazarene. But moving through this chronologically, Jesus doesn't rock up the next chapter of Genesis chapter 4. He doesn't just arrive on the scene straight away. Humanity sins, God makes this promise of salvation, and then we have the rest of the Old Testament history spending a long time going through this roller coaster of human life east of Eden. Why? Why didn't God just sort this thing out straight away after the fall of Genesis 3? Well, as Terry often quoting James Stockley, and I don't know if it began with him, but we'll leave it with you. No, he's shaking his head. Time is the greatest expositor of the truth. Time is the great expositor of the truth. So over time, we're going to see something true about us. We sin, and that Old Testament era shows us the consequences and the truth of what happened in the fall. Human beings do not relate to God, to each other, or the world the way we were supposed to, and we are incapable of fixing that problem ourselves. Read the history of Israel, and as you do it, look at your own life. We need divine intervention. We need divine intervention. I remember when I was in the UK not long ago, uh, I heard this guy from Africa sharing his story. Never heard the name of Jesus before. He grew up in in a small village out in in the middle of nowhere, um, African spiritualism, um, all sorts of, you know, dark arts he was involved in there. And he um, heard the name Jesus in a dream. So he went to the city once somewhere and saw the name Jesus on a building, went in there and asked the, the guy about Jesus. And he just handed in the book, the Bible, and he said, read this. Um, that was it so he went home and he was reading this thing and he got to this the end of that kind of section called the old testament and he was he was relating so much to all of the details in there particularly you know the magicians there in exodus replicating the things that god was doing there um and he was identifying with it and he was burdened by it and by the end of the old testament he came back to the church and he's like where is the hope (laughs) where is the answer i mean this thing sucks i'm i'm like three quarters of the way through the book and it's just proving that you know there's a problem here and he's like did you finish it? No. Well, he, keep on reading and come back and have another chat. And so when Jesus came in the gospel, a hand in a glove, it just made sense. That's why we have the Old Testament. Put Jesus and the cross on the summit of redemptive history and that cross looks glorious. Cut it out and isolate it and only talk about the three days dead saga and then the resurrection. You lose the context and the potency of this message we call the good news of Jesus Christ. So, now, out of the garden, east of Eden, out of a direct relationship with God, God chooses to make himself known through this obscure backyard, little, unimportant nation called Israel, the Jews, through their judges, their kings, their laws, their prophets, and most of all, through their Messiah, Jesus the Jew, the promised king of the Jews from the tribe of Judah. Well, by the time of the first century then, Jesus is here preaching this sermon on the mount, somewhere near Galilee. And there was this sect of Judaism called the Pharisees. The Pharisees were considered by uh, most religious people in Jewish society to be um, setting the standard for how it is to obey Jewish law, all 613 of the laws. So as Jesus is preaching this sermon on the mountain there to his disciples, and he makes this comment, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, that would have gotten the attention of the disciples who were listening to that. 
I mean, if the Pharisees set the standard and they weren't worthy of this kingdom, what hope do we have? That is the question Jesus' disciples would have been asking. And that is the question I want us to be asking as we go through this. What hope do we have living east of Eden? It's possible to get to the right destination the wrong way, so I'm not just going to give you the Sunday school answer, J-E-S-U-S. We're going to work there. As we continue to you know, work through this sermon here, the Sermon on the Mount, we see Jesus making these comments about the Pharisees, and, and he repeatedly uses this phrase, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And he moves through various issues to explain these laws and what they were really all about. Jesus wasn't correcting the Old Testament per se, as though they weren't quite quite right. No, he, he was correcting the superficiality of the, the Pharisees who understood this law as only being really this kind of legalistic, strict outward conformity to a set of regulations. That's what Jesus was addressing. Jesus says, no, the kingdom of God is so much more than a checklist of do's and don'ts. I mean, the problem in Genesis 3, it's not that Adam ate the fruit. It's that Adam ate the fruit of the tree that God said, do not eat from. This is not a fruit tree problem. It's a relationship problem. Because when you don't obey somebody, when they ask you to do something, that reflects your view of them. This is a worship disorder. This is a human God problem. By finding their hope in the obedience of the law, these Pharisees, they missed the point. And they were actually guilty of idolatry. It's a little hard to wrap your head around this. But they weren't worshipping God. They were worshipping their obedience of God. And they were in sin. And just as a footnote, uh, there's an entire book in the New Testament called Galatians that's all about this. You should check it out sometime. I've got a commentary at home called the Galatians, The Charter of Christian Liberty. I think that's such a good title. And in that book there, uh, the Apostle Paul, he explains how the law that God gave to Israel was like a mirror and that it was meant to reflect this sin problem to us. Because just like you don't go to a mirror and you know, find something in your teeth and then pull the mirror off the wall in order to pick the thing out of your teeth... So the law was never meant to solve the problem that it revealed to us. We needed something outside of the law, something outside of the mirror to come along and fix this issue that it had identified to us. We needed divine intervention. Holiness demands a miracle. The law was supposed to raise the question, what hope do you have living outside of Eden? It was begging the question of grace, of forgiveness, of reconciliation and of the whole point of the kingdom of God relationship. Sin isn't just outward conformity. That's not the problem here. It's an inner heart issue. That's why Jesus' teaching here on the Sermon on the Mount, it is so radical, but it's not actually new. (laughs) This is what it's always been about. The kingdom of God is always and has always been about relationships. So if you're a Christian here, I loved what Mick prayed before. If you're a Christian here, your commitment to God, your effort to be here on this day and sit in these pews and open up the word of God and sing songs and to pray, it ought not ever be out of a sense of duty, but delight and desire and joy at who you're talking to. The church should never be a place where you feel guilty for not having done enough 
or given enough. The church should be a place where the word of God is preached from the pulpit and the message of Jesus Christ crushes your heart so that you cannot help but give as much time as you can, as much money as you can, and as much of your energy as you can to the glory of God's name and the work of his kingdom. That is what a church should be about. Not making you feel guilty for not doing enough. Because I don't want somebody doing work in a church that I go to because they're feeling guilty. This explains burnout, by the way. That's another whole talk. The kingdom of God is all about what's going on in here, in your heart. Probably wondering, you know, I thought this was part two of a talk on work. Trust me, this is important. This is the kingdom of God in which we are called to work. We need to understand this and it's all going to work like a hand in a glove, like our friend from Africa. It's going to make sense when we arrive at talking about work. So just hold on for a second. So with that, turn over the page now to Matthew chapter 6 and let's see what Jesus had to say about our hearts. This is sub point one. So redeemed by God's work. Work in the kingdom of God, redeemed by God's work. Let's begin verse 19 through to 21. Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In this passage, Jesus gets right to the heart of what's going on in the disorder of creation. Again, Genesis 3, uh, 17 to 19. Sin affects work in the place where Adam had shifted the goal, away from the glory of God to what he could get from it, trying to be like God. And that's what Jesus is getting at here when he says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Don't look to the apple of your eye. Jesus isn't saying... Don't get earthly treasures. He isn't saying that we shouldn't even find satisfaction or fulfillment in our work. It's just not the source of it. He's not saying that you shouldn't be saving up for a rainy day. He's not saying that you shouldn't exercise prudence and foresight with respect to your possessions. Even the ant saves up for the winter. He's getting to the heart of the selfish nature and misplaced values. It's not wrong to possess things, but those things should never possess you. Now, when we say heart today in the West, we, we usually mean it as a metaphor for our feelings, right? It's not what the Bible means here. From a Jewish perspective, the heart is a holistic description of a person, their mind, their will, their emotions. So when Jesus says, if our treasure is on earth, then our heart, the entirety of our being, is invested in things that do not last, into things that decay like moth and rust, and the things that get taken away without a moment's notice by thieves. Did you catch that thieves part? Jesus is saying sin steals from sin. It takes what it gives, leaving you worse off than when you began. <laughs> and we see this right back in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve ate the fruit believing that they would be improved, that they'd get a promotion at their work, that they'd go from being their keeper to the Lord. And what happens? The first bit of work that Adam and Eve get to in the garden after they eat the fruit. They were naked, so they were ashamed. So they went and they made themselves a little reef of leaves to cover their nakedness. And God comes through the garden in the cool of the day and he calls their name and what do they do? They were naked 
So they went and hid. Why would you need to go hide if you did a good job covering yourself up? Sin steals from sin. It promises you something. And you might get it for a little bit, but leaves wither and die. And it leaves you wanting more than if you'd never done it. When you're tempted at work, whatever your work is, to cut a corner, to get an outcome that you know you shouldn't be doing, Remember the message of Adam and Eve. The leaves, you will be left off worse than when you began. You need divine intervention. Only God's work can fix this problem in your heart. And he will clothe you with a skin. There's no improvement. There's no promotion. It was just the opposite. You see, work, the first work in the fall of humanity, was a failure. And that should tell us something about how good we are on our own. Only God can cover our shame. So Jesus continues here, Matthew 6, 22 to 23. And he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then light, the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Here Jesus changes the metaphor from the heart to the eye. From treasure to light. Just as the heart, the mind, the emotions, the will of a person are oriented by the treasures that they seek, so the eye provides the light to the whole body, leading and guiding it. But just as our earthly treasures that we work for are given over to moth and rust and thieves, so our inner light is given over to darkness. In short, Jesus is saying with these two word pictures of, of heart and treasure and light and eye, he is saying that the work of our hands and the treasures that they provide, nor the light within us to guide us, can provide or answer what we're looking for. So in fig leaves, just don't do it. We're still naked and we're still ashamed. It's the same message here in Matthew chapter 6. It's like he's theorizing what's going on in Genesis chapter 3. We need a physician. We need heart surgery. We need eye surgery. We need not just surgery. We need a heart transplant. We need an eye transplant. We need a heart of flesh, a heart of stone to be made into a heart of flesh. We need treasures beyond this earth. We need a light beyond our bodies. So again, we find ourselves asking the question, this desperate, urgent, east of Eden question, what hope do we have? And check this out. Romans chapter 5. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to summarize it here with just some key statements, but oh, it's good. It's good. Go home and read it, please. Listen to this. This addresses every single question we've just raised. Since, therefore, we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace into which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if, because of Adam's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners... 
So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. That word should be ringing like a bell in your ears right now as you reflect on Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. Your righteousness must exceed even that of the Pharisees. What hope do we have? The second Adam. That's the hope that you have. The second Adam. Jesus Christ and his righteousness. We have the divine intervention. We have the miracle that holiness demands. Jesus said over and over and over, repent and believe because the kingdom of God is at hand. That means that he had a message that was going to change things for us. He made a way beyond ourselves. He spoke a truth that counteracted the lies. And he provided a solution in his own life that addressed the problem of death. And he didn't just give those, he was those. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We have a treasure beyond the earth. We have a light beyond our bodies. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of, and of wisdom and knowledge. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Do you see how this works? You need a new heart. You need some righteousness. You need some light. You need a hope. You need a treasure. You've got it. The gospel works. You know, it seems so outlandish to think. Just pretend like you'd never heard this, right? And you're trying to talk to somebody about Jesus. 2020 has been a messed up year and 2021 is not looking too much better, right? And so you're trying to talk to somebody about hope because everyone is asking this question. Where is the hope? And so you start trumpeting on about some peasant from backyard corner of Roman Empire who's a carpenter and then he gets hanged up on a cross and killed between two criminals and oh, he came back to life and now there is hope. <laughs> right, yeah, okay. It seems so outlandish. It seems so alien. But it literally is extraterrestrial. <laughs> It had to be otherworldly because this earth was groaning. There was no answers here. There was no treasure on earth that we could find. We had to get the treasure of heaven. We had to get the divine intervention. We had to have somebody from the outside to come inside to speak sense to us and fix this problem that we got ourselves in. It actually makes sense when you go through it. But again, this is why we have to not isolate the gospel out of its context and present it to our friends and our family and our work friends and our colleagues in a context that makes sense of it. Let's be smart about this. Hope came in a person, Jesus Christ, the second Adam. Check this out. The first Adam, he goes to work in a garden, right? And he gets this instruction about a tree. The second Adam, Jesus, he goes to work in a garden. And he gets an instruction about a tree. The first Adam disobeyed God in the garden of Eden. And he ate from the tree of the knowledge of truth and evil. Truth, good, knowledge of good and evil. The second Adam, he goes to work in the Garden of Gethsemane and he bends the knee in perfect submission to the will of his Father and he says, not my will but yours be done and he goes to the tree of Calvary. This works. This actually works when you do spend time to try and unpack it. It's outlandish. It sounds bizarre. But it works. God has confounded the wisdom of every single age 
and I hung out with some smart dudes in, in the UK and they've got no hope and it plagues them. They've told me, some of them. They have no hope. This story about a very common individual who happened to be God dying on a cross and coming back to life happens to give us hope in an insane period of human history like we are in right now. And when it comes to this question of work, we cannot understand it unless we understand this because this changes everything we do. How can it not? It all comes together here. Literally all of the things we've just been talking about, relationships, obedience, treasures in heaven, treasures on earth, light, darkness, check this out. They all come together into focus on the cross. Jesus, the treasure of heaven, he comes to earth. He entered the curse of creation, becoming subject to death and decay. He was destroyed like the moth and the rust. And he was nailed on a cross between two thieves. And in Matthew 27, we read this. From the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The light of the world came into this earth, and on the cross, the world gets dark. Darkness means God's judgment, and that it was over all of the earth means that it was over all of this creation and the inhabitants of this creation, human beings. Punishment was coming on the cross and execution was ready. And when Jesus cried out, my God, my God, he wasn't complaining about his body. My head, my head, my feet, my feet, my hands, my hands. His head had thorns twisted into it. His feet and his hands had iron nails driven through them into the back of a piece of wood. He wasn't crying out, my back, my back, which had been opened up by the Roman whip. He said, my God, my God. Because this was all about a relationship with him. My God. Genesis chapter 1, 26 to 27. God says, let us make mankind in our image who's the us the triune godhead father son and spirit jesus christ was the incarnation of the second person of the trinity the son of god that godhead we know from john chapter one existed in perfect harmony forever in perfect relational love harmony subsisting in and of itself forever And on the cross, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is an eternal thing going on on the cross that I think we are literally going to be working to understand in little study centers in glory of heaven for all of eternity because it is so profound. I'm almost a little bit nervous talking about this lest I step into heresy ignorantly. Something happened on the cross within the Godhead. My God, my God. And not only that, this language, my God, is covenant language. God said throughout the Old Testament, I will be your God and you will be my people. My God, my God, is covenant language. And covenants were usually cut on the basis of obedience, certainly at least in the Mosaic law. It was a bilateral covenant. I will do this if you do this. Jesus 
perfectly obeyed. And he is asking, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We know as Christians living this side of Genesis chapter 3, this side of the cross, that anyone who comes to Jesus Christ, we know that he will not turn them away. Anyone who comes to God, he will not, he will not forsake them. No matter what you've done, no matter where you come from, no matter how great your debt, his bank of grace can cover it. But the only person in human history to actually obey and cry out to God was the one that God turned away. Do you see how deep the cross goes, right? This is huge, high and holy stuff. Jesus Christ, God, died. And yet... (laughs) And yet, as all of that is going on, he somehow finds within himself the strength of you know, suffocating in his lungs, pulling himself up on these nails that are grinding against his bones. He somehow manages to find within himself the strength to say, yet, Father, forgive them. They just don't know what they're doing. And he still offers the hand of forgiveness to us. Can you see how profound the Garden of Gethsemane was now when he's bending that knee saying, not my will but yours be done this is huge this is this is the cost of sin and if you don't get your sin you'll never get the goodness of god in your life and this is good news for you and me in two ways first of all it's a double substitution the cross because god puts our sins on jesus who dies the death that we should have died. And then he puts Jesus' righteousness onto us so that we live the life that we should have lived. It's all connected. And we have to understand this about our lives before we go to work because this changes everything. Just like God's work in making the clothes of skin that changed Adam and Eve and their attempted work at sown leaves, Jesus' work at Calvary changes the way you go to work. So let's get to it, and this is our final section, don't worry. Work in the kingdom of God participates here, section 2, in God's redemptive work. Back to Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body what you, or what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. And which of you, by being anxious, that is me all week, which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about your clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is today alive and tomorrow thrown into the fire or the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles, they're the pagans in the eye of the Jew, the Gentiles seek after these things, but your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. 
So seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things will be given to you. That is a reorientation away from what sin had confused. There is something profoundly liberating yet profoundly simple about the Christian message. Jesus frees us from everything else in this world by giving us a new treasure, a new light, a new focus. He didn't simply say, don't worry, don't be anxious. He calls us to replace our worries and our anxieties with something else, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You see, while Christians, we aren't saved by works, we are saved for doing work. A pastor I like to listen to, John Corson in the US, he, he says it like this. He says, Christianity, it's not faith by works. It's not faith and works. It's faith that works. Now you're going to start to understand the book of James. <laughs> it's faith that works. Just like Adam, who was created in the image of God and expressed that relationship by going to work, because that's what it looks like to be a worker, to reflect the image of God. So you and I as creatures, new creations in Christ, in our new created life, go to work. It's what you were designed to do. Work is good. And faith, a faith that works, it looks like, well, again, everything we've talked about in part one, so I don't really need to go over it too much. Last week, get online, have a listen. It's the commission that Adam had to have dominion to rule over the earth, to work and to keep the garden. In this chapter, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is, is reminding us of that creation mandate to go to work. In both word and deed, he reminds us to keep our eyes on things above and to not get distracted with all the byproducts and, and provisions, things like what we will eat or what we will drink or what we will wear, all of the worries and anxieties that come when we focus on the byproduct of our work, not on the goal of our work, which is to glorify God. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. If you do that, the byproducts and the provisions, they'll be sorted out. We've come full circle. <laughs> Work in the kingdom of God is just like work in the order of creation. I can hear a but. It's coming somewhere. But, but, but. Come on, man. We're living this side of Genesis chapter 3. We're east of Eden. You can't tell me that our work's the same as Adam in Genesis chapter 2. You know, he had a pretty good thing going on there. We live in a cursed creation. It hurts to go to work. We sweat. There are thorns and thistles. So while our work may be the same as Adam's in principle, it is different in practice because we leave this side of Genesis 3. So as it relates to our work here and now, the question becomes, what does it look like to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness in a hurting world? Well, the relationship between faith and work, it, it's a huge question that has a very long and divisive history within the church. Second century bishops, as they started to understand this idea of the early church, and now we're talking after the New Testament, as they started to organize themselves, bishops and things like that, that's where the divide between clergy and laity was first introduced. Eusebius talks about this in some of his works. And by the end of, uh, by the time, you know, third, fourth century, when Christianity became the dominant religion of the Roman Empire, it was well and truly entrenched by Augustine, Athanasius. Zoom forward a thousand years to the end of the medieval era 
and you literally, the only culture in town was Christendom. Everything was you know, pushing the prestige and the glory of the monastic order of that way of life, of the clergy over the laity. Clergy was to be preferred. This was the sacred secular divide. The Reformation comes and Luther really pulled that in a lot and his work on this is, I really enjoyed it, it's excellent. But then in pulling that in, the Protestant work ethic over time actually gave rise to the working class and industrialization. And now we're in this world that you and I know today with competing theories of work and ethical theories of economy like communism and capitalism. And we're kind of in a mess again. <laughs> There's a long, very divisive history of that. And even within the church today, this division is still with us, particularly within evangelicalism. Usually it appears in the form of the question, what's more important for my life, ministry or work? I think you know what I'm talking about, but just so we're clear, I'm going to read something to you from a pastor in Sydney um, who wrote an article on the subject of work in the kingdom of God. He writes this, I can really only find two reasons in scripture as to why we work. We work in order to provide for our own basic needs and for those whom we are responsible. In so doing, we are not being lazy or a burden to others. We work to survive. We work, point two, we work so that we might be generous. And he gives two Bible verses for those. And then he goes on. I often hear people add in a third reason based on the mandate of Genesis 1.28. However, I believe that Genesis 1 is teaching nothing more than that God gives human beings the right to use the resources of this world in order to enable them to thrive. We don't work in order to advance the kingdom of God or advance the gospel. God is working in the world through the proclamation of Christ crucified. Work itself doesn't proclaim Jesus. Our lives in themselves do not proclaim Jesus. The only thing that advances the kingdom of God in this world is the verbal proclamation of the message about Jesus Christ and him crucified. We may do some of that gospel proclamation during our work life, but our work itself is not the work of the kingdom. The implications of this are massive. It means that our paid work is less significant than the gospel proclamation and the ministry that we do. Sharing the gospel and teaching a Bible study group, a Sunday school class, or our own children about Jesus is far more important than the work that we do in order to survive and to enable us to be generous, end quote. This deeply troubles me. Because these are evangelical friends, close to home. This has been preached from pulpits in Australia and around the world. And after everything we've looked at here, I hope you can understand why, at least it bothers me. The whole question about what's more important, work or ministry, it's a question no writer of Scripture ever asked because it's a distinction that no writer of Scripture ever made. You will not find that anywhere in Scripture. The whole of the New Testament assumes and commends the dignity of work. Please, if you, I know that... Go to a word study for yourself this week. Word study on work. And find this out for yourself. Don't ever just take whatever you hear from this pulpit. Do the work yourself. And be convinced from the Scriptures yourself. 
and Paul, the champion of justification by faith, he will tell you, I worked harder than anyone else so that I would not be a burden. The great commission to go and make disciples of all the nations does not supersede or replace the creation mandate given to Adam to go and have dominion and rule over all the world. It becomes a part of it. Our work is not the point of difference. Our place is the point of difference. We live this side of Genesis 3, east of Eden. Our ground is cursed, but we're still called to work. The laity, the clergy, the secular, the sacred, these dualisms, in my opinion, are unbiblical false dichotomies. Secularism is the belief that God or religious values and duties have no place in certain spheres of life. If you're a Christian... You're in Christ and your whole life is sacred. The only secular work you can be doing as a Christian is sin. Because that's the only work that won't be reflected in the image of God in who, and that's the only work that God is not a part of. It's a privation of his goodness. Apart from sin, it's all sacred. Work is ministry and ministry is work. It's all about and has always been about seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's why Jesus says here in Matthew chapter 6, you cannot serve two masters. You cannot be a little bit pregnant. You cannot be a little bit married. You cannot be a little bit Christian. Christianity is totalizing on your life. It is holistic if you are a believer. And what grieves me about well-meaning, misguided preachers who elevate their particular way of verbally proclaiming the gospel over and above the work of a Christian nurse or a Christian engineer or a Christian baker or a Christian tiler or a Christian photographer or a Christian doctor, take your pick, fill in the blank of whatever it is you do. What concerns me about that kind of teaching is that it divides the body of Jesus Christ and the unity that we have been called to to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And there have been massive consequences in the church because of this. Huge. I believe truly that this is part of the reason why so many people within the church today have compartmentalized lives. They are the Monday to Sunday gap, you know. I'm a Christian Sunday and maybe Wednesday midnight Bible study. But, you know, beyond that, pick up the Bible when I go back to church again. Because, hey, if I'm not being paid by a church or a ministry, then it's not kingdom work. And so maybe, because that's most of us here, maybe because most of us here don't happen to be getting a paycheck from church, maybe most of us aren't really doing most of the time kingdom work. Help you if you believe that. You're speaking this to me <laughs> as much as you or anyone else. This is literally my testimony. I've wrestled with this for 11 years of my life now. So this is me speaking to myself. Seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, it's not something that you put at the top of your priority list as a Christian. This is the rule of faith binding you on your conscience that organizes everything on your list. Everything you do should be done to the glory of God by seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. Let me make this as controversially plain as I can. <laughs> if you're a tiler on a construction site, who's been paid to do a certain job, tiling a bathroom, and have it finished by Friday. And if you don't get that work finished because Jimmy 
a chippy wants to have a chat to you about Jesus for an hour and a half over lunch break and you take that time and so you don't get the work done you're being unfaithful to God to his calling and the work that he's provided you with because that does not like seeking for, look like seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness in the work that you're being paid to do I'm not saying don't go to work and share the gospel. I'm saying go to work and do your work. (laughs) And do it well and be the best that you can be at your work. Set an example for what it looks like to be a faithful worker. And watch what God's going to do. If you reflect the image of God in your workplace and you treat others, not as little evangelistic projects, but as people with dignity for who they are made in the image of God, then they're going to respect you and they're going to want to talk to you. Your boss isn't going to resent you because you're preaching Jesus on his watch. This is going to cultivate an environment where it's going to be organic. And in the context of a relationship, guess who's going to have an opportunity to talk to that person about Jesus? Kingdom of God is all about relationships, folks. Honor God in your work by doing your work well. And you won't have to force an obnoxious, awkward, verbal proclamation of the gospel to somebody who couldn't care less because you have not earned that right to talk to them about something that will change their life. I don't guarantee this. Scriptures do. If you're faithful in what God gives you in the little, watch what he'll give you. Do you see how we can't separate faith from work? Do you see how we cannot separate our work from God's work in the kingdom. We go to work because God has made us in his image and he is a working God. So we go to work. We go to work because Christianity is not just an idea. It's a practice. It's a life seeking after the kingdom of God and his righteousness in everything we do. And everything that we do of that, most of it's work. It's the way God's made it. Idle hands are the devil's workshop. We will not grow in righteousness picking up seashells in our little caravans in our twilight years of life. You don't know where Paul and Peter, Peter found righteousness? When he was fishing, Jesus comes along and he says, put your net over the other side and this miracle happens and Peter gets, and he falls on his face and he says, I am unworthy, Lord. We learn righteousness in the workplace better than most places. Adam, the second Adam, We don't have to worry or be anxious or proud about our work because we go to work not to find meaning and purpose in life, but because we already have meaning and purpose in life. That's why we go to work. If you want to see how much something is worth, you look at how much somebody's going to pay for it. And again, on that cross, Jesus died for you with a price that no dollar could be put against because he is an infinite and eternal God. What does that tell you about you? and the dignity that he has for you and the work that he's called you to do because he wants you to reflect his image in that place. This is the way the gospel changes how you work because now all of a sudden your value and your identity is not bound to what you do, it's bound in who you are. And now all of a sudden your hurts aren't going to go to your heart and your praise isn't going to go to your head because Jesus humbles us and exalts us at the same time. And we go to work because the gospel is not just about being saved from the penalty of sin. 
It is also about being made new from the inside. Because the fall didn't just destroy our relationship with God. It destroyed our relationship with each other. It destroyed our relationship with the ground. It has alienated us. It has broken relationships. So as creation groans for its redemption, God comes and he dies on the cross. And we come to repentance and faith in him. And he renews and restores our relationship with him. But not only to him, but to each other. And to the ground, to creation. So we go to work because Christians aren't only changed inwardly, we are changed outwardly so that wherever we are in this world, our environment, it's going to begin to change to reflect this new creation of the newness that we have within. Let's have a big view of the gospel, guys. This is redemption and our relationship with Jesus Christ is central. But don't reduce it down to a particular cut explanation of that particular process. God is bigger. His work is huge. And there are eschatological implications of work when you put this into the bigger image of God's redemptive plan. When we are working towards ultimately the new heavens and the new earth. And we're going to keep on working there too. Because work is good. So I'm going to go to work when I can. (laughs) And I'm going to work with a different attitude that I have had. I cannot believe this year has been hard for me. Came home. Uh, unexpectedly early from the UK, spent six weeks not working. It messed with my head, big time. And then I get asked out of the blue to do a talk on work for a, a Bible college in the States. And so I do some thinking. And I was so convicted in my thinking for that talk. It was only a half hour talk. And then an opportunity presents itself to speak here. So we expand that out for two hours and here we are. I'm living this. If I'm speaking with passion and I've offended you, please know that this is because I've offended myself. Work is good. In a year where workplaces and people and employees have been smashed by uncertainty and fear, this is a time for Christians to shine because we have a hope that transcends circumstance. Be grateful for your work. Wake up tomorrow or go home today and be excited to work. I, don't think it, I, I can't think of anything else to say. I don't think anything else needs to be said. So I'm going to pray and get to work, saints. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, I'm going to pray through Philippians chapter 3 here. Lord, for your sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, that righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Father in heaven, give us grace today as we try and understand, maybe some of us for the first time, what our work actually is. Lord, may we be a people who seek to restore the glory of work as an activity that reflects the image of who you are, a working God. Father, I pray for the church 
I pray for your people. May we always be a people who are willing to reform our doctrine by your word because where your word is perfect, our understanding is not. And after all, that's where this all began with an assault on your word. Did God really say? And Lord, thank you for Jesus, the word, the outside alien who came in, the treasure from heaven, the light of the world, the word of God who came back, not just in a language that some people could understand, but in a universal language in human flesh that every single human being can identify with. Father, thank you for him. You have such a fitting servant. The God-man, Jesus Christ, the second Adam, who went to work in a garden, who was faithful to his work on a tree, and who in that work, in our redemption, secured something for us that I don't think we even begin to understand this side of eternity, and I don't even think we will in that side of eternity. Because you are God and we are not, and there is a massive gap between the two. And yet here I am, and here we are, sitting on pews, hanging out, fellowshipping, we're about to sing songs, And the reality is, Lord, you have called us to participate in your kingdom work. Our prayers are effectual because you have invited us into your redemptive work. What does that say about what you think of us, Lord? What does that say about the love that you have for us, the dignity that you've given us? And then when we ask the question why, we remember, well, it's actually not about us. It's because of who you are and it's because of the image we bear. It's because of who Jesus is and it's because of the life that we now live in him. God, forgive me, forgive me for thinking for so long that sitting at my engineering desk uh, was not doing your work. Lord, my flesh is weak. And we've seen in your word today that the root of anxiety and worry is unbelief. So help my unbelief. Because I'm preaching this message and I'm pumped and I'm excited. But Lord, you know that I'm going to struggle with this soon with discontentment and dissatisfaction. God, grip me with your grace. Give me a strength so that I can walk forward in the newness of the dawn of the day that shines beyond that empty tomb and not look back to the treasures of this earth or the darkness of the light within me. Give me a new heart. Give me new eyes. May, I, may you equip me and everyone here with a kingdom vision that gives glory and honor to who you are and what you have done. We love you, Father. I'm excited. I think we're excited to get on and get this thing done called living life that so much of our time of that is filled with work. So God, we go now in your grace and secure in who you are and what you've done for us. And in that name, the name of Jesus, all God's people said, Amen.